All right, if you have a Bible, we'd love for you to join us in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. We'll begin at verse 24. So if you're watching with us, Acts 10 and 24. In Tolkien's classic book, The Hobbit, Gandalf the wise wizard foists a situation on the narrow-minded Bilbo, which offers him a chance at adventure, importance, and great rewards. The journey will be challenging, it will be unpredictable, bringing Bilbo into company of new friends, dangerous foes, and definitely out of his own comfortable way of doing things. By the end of the story, the Hobbit has grown and developed in ways he never could have predicted, and frankly, never would have invited. He returns home with wonderful treasures in tow, and the world, his world, is better for his having gone. Victories were won, lives were saved, and right was once again reigning over Middle-earth. The broad strokes are not so unlike the story playing out in Acts chapter 10 and the passages surrounding it that we've covered in previous studies. God had a great adventure in mind, sending his people, the church, to go with him and do battle against the dragon, to take back what the dragon had stolen. In the Lord's case, we're not talking about mere silver and gold, but about undying human spirits. And here we drop in as God starts an amazing new era of gospel work, which would ultimately cover the whole earth. Like Gandalf, our Lord wants to bring those along who wouldn't naturally sign up for such an adventure. In reality, none of us would naturally sign up to take up our cross and follow our Savior. But the Father knows that that is exactly what we need to do. And so, after bringing an unexpected party to Peter's front door one morning, uh, one afternoon really, God sends him down a road that would change his life, change the church forever, and change the course of human history to our direct benefit, by the way, all we Gentiles here uh, listening tonight. God invites each of us to follow him on our own gospel adventure as we continue the work of Acts. We're continuing the story. As we go with him, the Lord doesn't leave our progress to chance or to our own ability. Instead, we know from the revelation of scripture in passages like this one tonight that the Lord has intentional plans that he wants to execute in each of our lives. We see the character of these plans the Lord has as we read about Peter bringing the gospel to Cornelius, the Gentile centurion, at what some refer to as Gentile Pentecost. We're going to start at verse 24, and we read this. The following day, Peter entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. In this verse, we first see that God's mission is to get us intermingled with people who need ministry. Uh, It's a basic idea, but in a world that is increasingly uh, electronic, in a world that is increasingly uh, able to separate ourselves from others, uh, we need to be reminded God wants to mingle us up with people. In the midst of this pandemic that we're experiencing, the governments of the world are all about what? Isolation. They're all about separation. Get away from people. Uh, We understand As a general principle of ministry, God's plan is to mix us up with others. And once all of this has blown over and, and, you know, worked its way through, we want to remember as Christians that God's plan is to mix us up with people. Not that we isolate, not that we separate, but that we get into the midst of people that God has sent us to. Already in the book of Acts, we've seen Peter interacting with Jews and Samaritans, with scribes and sorcerers, with cripples, with converts. 
Sometimes he talks to one person, sometimes to a crowd of thousands. And so the Lord wants to mix us up with people. Of course, none of these encounters that we've read about were by Peter's design, right? He didn't say, you know, it would be good today. It would be good today for me to raise the dead. It would be good for me today. It would be good for me to talk to 5,000 people today. None of them were by his design. They were part of his adventure as he followed the leading of God, the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we get the feeling that to be a real Christian, real in air quotes, we've got to, do, got to go to some strange and far off land. And it is true that in some cases, God does great work through people who are far from home among a people altogether different than them. And some of the great Christian biographies of history um, uh, are people like David Livingston or, or people like Gladys Aylward, people who far, far from home in a, in a, amidst a strange people and the Lord using them in dramatic and wonderful and miraculous ways. And certainly in this text even, there is a wide gap between the subjugated Jewish fishermen and the Roman centurion. But we just as often see people ministering to those immediately around them in their own household, in their own community. That's what Cornelius did, right? He's a great inspiration for us, the way he lived his life, the way he applied uh, his belief in God to the behaviors of his life. Look at his example. He gathered friends. He gathered family. We think of Andrew, uh, one of the first disciples called. He had a family ministry. He brought people to Jesus who he knew. Think of Timothy's mother, Eunice. The principle is not that we must travel a certain number of miles in order to be bona fide Christians, but rather we find the principle is God's intention is to get us mingled with others. And who he mingles us with are, is his business. Be they many or few, near or far, different or the same, uh, God has a plan of where to scatter us and how to do so. His principle is to mix us up so that we can bring the gospel to folks. Now, Peter and his fellows from Joppa still didn't know exactly what was going on in this whole situation. I'm guessing it was an interesting couple of days walking to Caesarea. Gentiles didn't know what to expect either. And yet they all pressed on in anticipation, in obedience to what God had asked them to do. Walking forward down the road, step by step, wondering how is this all going to end? In verses 25 through 33, we see God's mission is not only to intermingle us with others, but also to get us into right relationship with them. Verse 25 says, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter helped him up and said, stand up. I myself am also a man. Some commentators try to say, well, Cornelius was just giving Peter an oriental style welcome. Uh, but clearly doesn't seem like that's what Peter thought he was doing. Uh, Peter recoils the way that we see sometimes angels recoiling when people fall down to worship them and say, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> and so to Peter's credit, he immediately lifted Cornelius up. And what did he do? He declared their equality, which is really an astounding statement no matter what angle you approach it from. You know, on the one hand, let's look at it from sort of the Peter angle. Peter is an apostle one of the leaders of the church, this amazing movement. He's a miracle worker. He's one of the three in the inner circle of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He had just raised a woman from the dead a few days ago. He held the keys to the kingdom, Jesus said. But here, looking on this misinformed, unbeliever, pagan Gentile, he wasn't pagan, he was a God-fearer, but you know, this misinformed, unbeliever, Peter looked at him and he said, yeah, I'm not any higher than you. I'm the same. I'm a man just like you are. 
From the other angle, looking at Cornelius, his assertion is just as remarkable. Cornelius is the strong arm of the occupying power, Rome. He was specially skilled. He was a man with wealth and prominence and position, a man of valuable strength, a man who commanded others. Peter was a penniless, semi-retired fisherman who frequently had run-ins with the Jewish authorities. And so uh, just a dramatic difference between two people, and yet in God's eyes, they're the same in that he loves them the same. We are all his most precious creation. Man, each loved, each handcrafted in the womb. Each of us are the object of his fervent affection. We are each priceless pearls in his eyes. And what we've seen in previous passages is that God doesn't play favorites. He's not a respecter of persons. It is an amazing thing to be able to say that God's love for Cornelius is the same as his love for Peter. In the same breath, God's love for Saul of Tarsus It's the same as his love for Peter. What an amazing uh, level of love that is indeed. As we go out as representatives of Christ, we are to be in right relationship with the people we encounter. There's no place for pride or prejudice in gospel work. We note that Peter didn't think he needed to be hailed as great. He didn't come in and demand to be served. He didn't have a rider that they had to fulfill before he was able to deliver a message to them. He wouldn't try to pocket any of Christ's glory for himself like Elisha's greedy servant Gehazi. No one needed to kiss Peter's feet or prostrate themselves before him. The Bible explains that being in right relationship with others means we place their needs before our own, that we treat others the way we want to be treated, and that we do so with humility and kindness, taking the form of the lowest servant. We're never to lord over others or put burdens on them, but instead we are to... uh, proverbially do what Peter did here, help them up, lift them up towards the Lord, that they might be fortified and encouraged and brought nearer to the lover of their souls. Verse 27 says, while talking with him, he went on in and found that many had come together there. Peter said to them, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner, but God has shown me that I must not call any person common or unclean. That's why I came without any objection when I was sent for, and so I ask, Why did you send for me? Being in right relationship with people means being honest and forthright with them. Not always a strength in our culture, but it's required of gospel ministry. Peter perhaps was a bit short on tact in his words. I mean, you know, he's pretty easygoing in the way he's talking here, and and he's pretty diplomatic, but end of the day he says, you know, you guys are culturally really gross to the rest of us. Uh, He says so in a kind way, but he maybe was a tiny bit short on tact, but he was by no means dishonest. He wasn't unkind. He didn't posture or parade. He didn't seek to impress. He didn't scheme. Neither did he demean them or berate them. He spoke the truth of what God had done for him. But then he asked them a key question. Why did you sin for me? Why am I here? Why are you here? What are you guys looking for in this meeting? What were their expectations? Were they hoping to see a wonder worked before them? Clearly, the news of Peter's abilities had spread far and wide. Were they hoping to be entertained by the man who knew things about Jesus others did not? I don't know if you've ever met someone who was the friend of a celebrity or the friend of an important person. It's almost impossible to not sort of query them. What what were they like? Even if we know somebody who met a famous person, what were they like? Oh, they were really rude, right? And so Peter's question here is honest. You're all gathered up here. 
You want me to entertain you? Am I supposed to you know, do a show for you? Why am I here? Why are you here? We should commend this group of Gentiles for their hunger for the truth. It's clear they were all well-versed well in Judaism and the things that had gone on, particularly Cornelius, who we know, though short of fully converting to the Jewish faith, went as far as he could as a God-fearer. But Peter pointed out, hey, you guys know the deal. You know that I'm not supposed to be here according to Jewish custom. And in a moment, he's gonna talk about how you know the things that were going on in Judea. And so we commend them. Why? Because they knew, everybody in that room, every Gentile knew that they were outside of Israel. As far as the Jews were concerned, they were not invited in. As far as the Jewish establishment, you know, the Sanhedrin were concerned and the, the cultural teachings and traditions of Judaism were concerned, all of them were waste, were just refuse on the eternal scale. They were outside, they were uninvited, there is no place for them. And yet what did they do? They assembled here to hear a message maybe from this, from this Jewish teacher. So many Jews didn't even see Gentiles as humans, but as animals, some of the rabbis would teach. And yet they gathered there that day in hopes that the God of Abraham would maybe, perhaps, just maybe show them mercy, show them how they could have their sins forgiven. He is the God of mercy. He's the God who loves the undeserving sinners of this world who have no claim to him. This seems a good reminder of the mercy of God that we preach. Our Lord offers salvation not to those who work for it, not to those who bribe him. It's not for popularity, not for merit. It's the free offer of grace to any and to all who will call on him and believe on his son. And it's available to anyone who is willing to do that. God's plan is to put us in right relationship with others and it demands that we value them the way that he does. And we see that his call on our lives must supersede any bias we have, any trepidation, any tradition. It must uh, supersede our own preconceived schedules and our own plans. We are to respond as soon as we are sent for because we are the agents of grace sent on God's mission of mercy, right? So what we know is that we have a God of grace, a God of mercy, who has a method of salvation so that people can live and not die. And the delivery method to get the word out is you and me. We are the delivery method. Uh, there's no other vending machine. There's no other platform. There's no other media that people can just tap in. It, it requires people to go and deliver a message. Now, in you know, this day and age, we have wonderful technology where people are able to beam in from all around the world if they want to. And we have video and we have audio. We have all of these different things. But at the end of the day, you and I are the conduits of the gospel, right? We share the message. And we are sent to go and make disciples. Uh, and so all the more here in this situation where it, it actually took a person walking 35 miles from one town to another to tell people that God loved them and was willing to save them. Verse 30 says, Cornelius replied four days ago at this hour at three in the afternoon, I was praying in my house. Just then a man in a dazzling robe stood before me and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. And therefore send someone to Joppa and invite Simon here, who is also named Peter. He's lodging in Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. Therefore I immediately sent for you and you did the right thing in coming. So we are all present before God to hear everything you have been commanded by the Lord. 
We can imagine the anticipation in the house as they waited for Peter's arrival. No, find my friends, right? They couldn't ping him and see, okay, they're this far away. I wonder how long they waited. Maybe someone in the group had seen Cornelius's, you know, excitement and, and his hope and, and maybe pulled him aside and said, hey, you know this man is a Jew. He can't even cross the threshold. I, I want to hear from him too, but maybe you should prepare yourself for him not coming. He can't come here, let alone, you know, speak with us. And yet Cornelius would have simply said, he'll come, he'll be here. We see just a wonderful exercise of faith in this group. Thank God Peter did the right thing and obeyed when the Lord sent him out. Many of you have heard of a Christian named Brother Yoon. In his autobiography, The Heavenly Man, he tells a story of how as a young man in China, he became desperate to get a Bible. No one they knew had one in their whole village. And so one day his mother walked him to another village where she had heard that there was a man who had a Bible. And so he brought him there and found their way to the man and said, you have a Bible? And the man said, yes, but he was too afraid to even show Yoon his copy. But he told him, this God of the Bible, he will give you a Bible if you pray to him for it. And sent Brother Yoon home. Yoon believed, and so for 100 days, he fasted and prayed for a Bible, eating only one small bowl of rice a day. One morning, there was a knock at the door. Two men had brought a Bible to Yoon. Three months before, an evangelist in another town had been instructed by the Lord in a vision to give his Bible to Brother Yoon. And although he did not know the young boy, the Lord had showed him the village and the house where Yoon lived in a vision, and it took him three months to decide to obey the Lord as Yoon waited. Thank God Peter didn't wait and didn't say, these are Gentiles we're talking about. I can't just go to Caesarea. I'm doing things here at Joppa. I, I can't just go into a centurion's house. These men are, they're outside. I, I can't go with them. He obeyed when he was sent for. Now, God's mission is not only to send us, but then to speak through us. Peter was not meant only to come to Cornelius's house, but then to communicate to him and his family. We cannot always anticipate when God will use us to preach or to minister in some way or who he might bring into our path for that moment, but we can ready ourselves to deliver the truth when called upon. So we understand from the Bible that as individuals, we are sent in general, but we're also sent to do something. We're sent to speak the gospel, to tell the truth to people, to reveal what God has revealed to us, right? And so I don't know if the Lord's going to, you know, call on me to pull over to the side of the road and share the gospel with someone later today, right, on my way home tonight. But I know that in general, I'm being sent and I'm being sent to speak. And so therefore, I can prepare to share that message as I follow the Lord. We can ready ourselves to deliver the truth. What has the Lord commanded? That's what Cornelius asked. And we know that answer. We may need to, you know, get a better handle of it in our minds or, or, or rehearse in our minds how we would communicate that and not just, well, be saved or you're going to hell. Okay, that, that is true, but how can we explain that? How can we can develop that? How can we reveal the, the, the breadth of what God has shown in his word to people who need to know? What is the way by which a person might be saved? How can someone receive forgiveness for their sins? These are questions 
we can prepare ourselves to answer. There are countless rousing speeches in movies just before a battle breaks out. The general stands before his troops or the hero rides along in front of his fellow soldiers, stirring their hearts with talk of valor and honor and glory and victory. Now imagine those scenes if the leaders just went to the front and had nothing to say. And they just said, well, I'm here. They had nothing to say, no speech, no words of wisdom, no rallying cry. Uh, it, would be, it would be strange and silly and anticlimactic. And Peter had done the right thing in coming, but the purpose was to deliver revelation to them, to deliver a message to them, and he did so. He was ready to do so. In verses 34 through 43, we see that God's mission is not only to intermingle us with others and to get us into right relationship with them, but also to lead us into a deeper understanding of truth. Peter began to speak, now I really understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does righteousness is acceptable to him. He sent the message to the Israelites, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know the events that took place throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did, both in the Judean country and in Jerusalem, yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and permitted him to be seen, not by all people, but by us, witnesses appointed beforehand by God who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. On that long walk to Caesarea in light of the vision he had received, it's clear that pieces of a puzzle began to fall into place in Peter's mind. Suddenly, he was realizing that his perspective on many issues were incomplete or askew. Suddenly, passages from the prophets uh, started making more sense. Scenes from his three and a half years with his Lord were all coming together into a unified picture of God's unlimited grace that was meant to go out to the whole world. Peter and Paul would both later write about their hope that we, God's people, would continue to grow in our knowledge of the Lord and his truth. Not so that we could be puffed up or keep some cosmic scorecard of who is more right and who is more wrong, but so that we would be more useful in his service and have a greater appreciation for what God has done. And so here in our text, we see that a purpose for growing in our understanding of the Lord's truth is so that we can proclaim it and testify that Jesus Christ is the one Messiah, the one way to everlasting life. And so once we're saved, if you're saved, you know enough to be saved, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believe on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's enough to be saved. But that's not the end of our understanding. Peter and Paul both wrote in their epistles to God's people, I, we hope that you will just keep growing and keep learning and keep you know, developing in your understanding of what God has done and what God has said and who the Lord is doesn't mean we're ever going to like tap into weird, you know, ideas that contradict the Bible or that there's secret knowledge that people don't understand. But look at Peter's progress here as he realized, wow, we're probably 10 years into the life of the church right now. And as he walked from Joppa to Caesarea, he realized I've really had a lot of things not quite right. 
as the Holy Spirit opened up his understanding and said, hey, Peter, this passage in the prophets that you probably have had memorized since you were a young Jewish boy, this passage of the prophets that you've rehearsed in your mind over and over again, think about it now in light of the fact that I, the Lord, want the grace of God to go out to the Gentiles. And he realized, wow, I haven't been full in my understanding on that. And that's an encouragement that no, long, no matter how long we walk with the Lord, we can continue to grow in our understanding, develop in our understanding of what the Lord has said in his word. Verse 44 says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speaking in other languages and declaring the greatness of of God. And so God is on a mission to intermingle us with others, to get us into right relationship with them, to lead us into a deeper understanding of his truth, and to fill us with his Holy Spirit. That baptism was not meant for only the 12 or only the 120 in the upper room on Pentecost in Jerusalem. The filling of the Holy Spirit is for every Christian everywhere. It is the regular operation of the Spirit in the life of a believer. Not that we ever demand or, or, or require an experience of tongues or some other visible manifestation, but we should expect the Holy Spirit to fill and infuse us in a life-changing way because that's what he did every time in the book of Acts. As this passage makes altogether clear, God does not class certain Christians high and other Christians low. Well, these people get full of the Holy Spirit, but these people, they're just saved. There's no such thing in the New Testament. But you know what's remarkable here? What does it say about the Jewish believers? These, these, these guys, who the circumcised believers, are Christians. They love the Lord. They love his word. They love the church. And when it says, man, I can't believe the Holy Spirit actually fell down on these Gentiles too. They're astounded. Hey, you know what's crazy? They just listened to the same sermon that Peter had delivered, right? He had just said all of this stuff. He's like, man, now I realize God's not a respecter of persons. And now I realize that the gospel's going out to everyone. And then when it happens, they're like, I can't believe that actually happened. <laughs> and so it's a, just an amazing thing to see that in our imperfect, fallen human understanding, we just need to grow. We want the Lord, hey, Lord, reveal in me something that I am not right on when in my understanding of your grace and of your gospel and of, of who you are and how you do things. And it's, it's, it's amazing to see all of this. They were still astonished that the Gentiles really were being saved the same way that they had been saved. They were astonished that God didn't have multiple tiers of access, but that's what we learn. There's not platinum Christians and bronze Christians. There just isn't. What a marvelous thing that God has the same spirit and the same grace and the same love for you and for me that he had for Peter or for any other great Christian hero of history. Think of your, you know, a great Christian hero in your heart. Somebody you think, man, that person, man, the Lord used them. God's love for you is the same as his love for them. And that's a wonderful thing to just think about for a moment. In passing, we note that the filling of the Holy Spirit here was manifest not just in a miracle of languages, but in the passionate overflow of praise. They didn't bark like dogs. They didn't bash their heads. They didn't you know, talk about Lear jets or anything like that. They praised the Lord for his greatness. Finally, in verses 47 and 48, we see that God's mission is to get us obeying. 
And Peter responded, can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay for a few days. These Gentiles had earnestly sought after God and were found by him. They had believed in their hearts under salvation and now their life of obedience was to begin as they set out on their own adventures of faith, following after the Lord as he led. Now, Peter here led the charge to, in a sense, make it official. Let's get these people baptized. Of course, it wasn't necessary for salvation. They were already saved. It was to start them off in their life of obedience to Christ, and it was to make it officials to the Jews who had come with him in the group there. They had been saved the same, and so they're going to be treated the same. As the Gentiles were being commanded to obey, these Jewish believers, too, were being given the opportunity to obey God's leading, to get on board with this amazing work of grace. Not only were they to agree to it, they were to do it. The six Jewish brothers from Joppa would be the ones baptizing Cornelius and his family there that day. You know, the road from Joppa to Caesarea is relatively straight. You go right up the coast from one town to the other. But for Peter and his friends, the trip had some surprising left turns. They were turns that led to the immeasurable expansion of God's mercy through the Gentile world. They were not only agents of that wonderful change, but they were changed themselves as they were brought into a deeper understanding of grace, brought into a deeper understanding of God's word, and brought out of their narrower mode of ministry. We look forward to how God will lead us on as a church and as individuals, as families, to continue the ministry of the gospel in whatever ways he desires, whatever ways he is set in front of us and making us more like him as we go along.